this is the first treasure I ever remember having. I bought this in May of 1973. It is a matchbox, models of yesteryear, 1930, Packard, Victoria. Do you like my treasure? For a long time, I only dreamed about this treasure because I had only ever seen it in a catalog and how I longed for it. But then one day, our local Amart started carrying the full series of these cars. They had a special display case for these cars with a lock on it because this is no run-of-the-mill 50-cent matchbox car. This cost $3.10. $3.10 was a lot of money in 1973. But as soon as I had saved enough money, my parents took me on a Friday night to purchase my treasure. I went to bed late that night because I stayed up playing with it, and I got up early the next morning to play with it again. Now, my intention is not to bore you with the details about my silly little treasure. It's simply to point out that th- this car was such a treasure to me that almost 46, over 46 years later, I remember every detail of wanting it and acquiring it. And my treasure grew. Every birthday, every Christmas, for years afterward, I got another model from the series. In between times, I purchased my own until I had the entire collection. And guess what? I still have it. We start seeking treasures very early in our lives. And we know what we have to do in order to acquire the treasure that we want. What do you treasure right now? See, I chose a safe one. (laughs) I chose a a 50-year-old treasure. We treasure things right now. What are they? And what are you doing to get that thing that you treasure? See, the challenge for each of us as believers in Christ, is to take the, the feelings that we have toward these earthly treasures and direct them to Christ. Our calling is to take the effort that we expend in order to acquire these treasures and put them instead into advancing the kingdom of Christ. Because Christ and His kingdom must be our greatest treasure. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we at long, long last return to Matthew chapter 6 and the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll take them and turn to Matthew chapter 6. And when you found your place, if you would stand so that we might hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up treasures for yourselves. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for this talk of rewards and treasure. Lord, we ask you that as we come to your word through the power of your spirit, that you would be directing our hearts and our minds and our desires toward you and toward your truth. Lord, so that as a consequence of being together around your word with your spirit, we might be changed in the people that you want us to be, that we might desire and treasure the things that you want us to desire and treasure. And Lord, if that requires making a replacement, we pray that you would do that in us as well. If we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Since we began looking at Matthew chapter 6, back in January, it seems to me that it would behoove us to reorient ourselves a little bit about what's going on in this chapter so that we better understand the verses that we read this morning, what Jesus has to teach us here. So if you will, keep your Bible open and look with me back in verse 1 of chapter 6. Jesus says there, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And now if you look to at the end of the chapter in verse 33, Jesus says there, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so this word righteousness functions as bookends for this chapter. And back in January, I borrowed a definition for righteousness from Jonathan Pennington's commentary. And this is how we defined it then. That righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, with God's will, and with God's coming kingdom. Righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, with God's will, and with God's coming kingdom. Now the word righteousness connects chapter 6 with chapter 5. Chapter 5 also has righteousness as a theme. In chapter 5, Jesus teaches his audience that righteousness is much bigger than they thought righteousness to be. Because Jesus told them in that chapter that murder is more than killing someone. Murder is also having anger in your heart. Jesus told them in that chapter that adultery is more than a physical act. It's lust in your heart and so on with all the examples that Jesus gives here. Jesus was expanding his audience's view of righteousness so that it encompassed the, the whole person, not just the outer actions, the entirety of who we are, our inner beliefs, our attitudes, and our loves that result in outward behavior. 
So we could say this. Chapter 5. In that chapter, Jesus addresses the heart in order to correct bad behavior like anger, lust, retaliation. When we move then to chapter 6, we could say that Jesus addresses the heart once again, but in order to correct good behavior. We looked at Jesus' teaching on giving in verses 2 through 4. Giving is a beautiful act. It is a good and right thing to do when it is done from a heart and in accord with God's nature, God's will, and God's coming kingdom. But giving is not a righteous act when it's done to bring attention or glory to self so that others will see you giving. The same thing in verses 6 through 13, we looked at Jesus' teaching on prayer. Prayer is a beautiful act. It's a good and a right thing to do when prayer is offered from the heart in accordance with God's nature and will and His coming kingdom. Prayer is not a righteous act when it's done to bring attention or glory to yourself so that others see you praying. Likewise with fasting, as we read this morning, verses 18 through 20. Fasting is a beautiful act. It's it's a good and a right thing to do when fasting is offered from the heart. And when it's done in accordance with God's nature, His will, and His coming kingdom, when it's not done for those reasons, when it's done to display personal piety, it is not a righteous deed. So living a righteous life, not doing wrong behavior, and rightly doing good behavior, that's in accordance with God's nature, His will, and His coming kingdom, it's not easy. Living a righteous life is not easy. Have you discovered that? God knows it isn't easy. And God doesn't expect any one of us to live righteously just for the sake of living righteously. That should be enough for us. But God knows that it isn't. He knows our frames. He knows that you and I and all His disciples need more than that. And so He gives us more. If chapter 6 is like an Oreo with righteousness being the the cookie that holds everything together, what then is the sweet cream in the middle? Rewards. Reward. Look at the end of verse 18. Jesus says, And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. If your righteousness is true righteousness... If, in fact, it accords with God's nature, God's will, and God's coming kingdom, then God will reward you. This is the promise of Jesus. And it's very important to Jesus, apparently, that his audience grasp the reality of rewards because this is now the sixth time in chapter 6 that he has used the word reward, and it's the eighth time. He's used it in the Sermon on the Mount. Clearly, Jesus wants you and me to think about the reward we will have. Look up in verse 4. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Look in verse 6. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now go back to chapter 5. Also the Sermon on the Mount. This great beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is what? Great. Your reward is great in heaven. According to Jesus' teaching here, reward is a reality. God will reward those who live a righteous life. If you give with a heart that's right toward God and not so others see you give, you'll be rewarded. If you pray with a heart that's right toward God and not so others will see, you'll be rewarded. If you fast with a heart that's right towards God and not so others see, you'll be rewarded. Reward is a reality. God will reward those who live a righteous life. Now, we just celebrated Reformation Sunday last week. And all the solas, sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, soli deo, deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, grace, faith, Christ, scripture, God's glory alone, those things seem worthy of attention and devotion. So placed alongside these great truths, we can feel a little guilty. We might even feel a little cheap to be thinking about the reward that we are going to get someday. We especially feel guilty if the thought of that reward is what motivates us to do what we do. But listen, if God didn't want us to think about our reward, if God didn't want us to be motivated by the reward, then he would not tell us about them. And Jesus would not put this idea of reward in front of his audience nine times in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants us to think about reward. And by reward, he means to recompense or to pay or to meet a contractual obligation. See, it makes us uncomfortable. Does it make you uncomfortable? To think that God owes us anything, and yet God has contracted with himself to reward or recompense us for our acts that are truly righteous. This is the teaching of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards. Literal, literally, he's a paymaster. He's the paymaster for those who seek him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 writes this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test the sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. See, the foundation of which the Apostle Paul speaks, is salvation by Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone. Please hear this. Salvation is never a reward for your good deeds or my good deeds. But 
your salvation. My salvation that's absolutely a free gift of God's grace through faith does become the foundation upon which you and I must build the rest of our lives. Our salvation, it's a starting point, a new foundation. We build our lives upon that. And in your life, in my life, we have choices to make every single day about how we are going to live our lives. We're going to either live righteously for God or we're going to live selfishly for ourselves. And you and I will be rewarded accordingly. We'll either have the Lord's reward or man's reward. Now look again in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, the reward that might have been yours, the reward that might have been mine if our hearts had been right, if we had lived our lives and chosen in our lives, according to God's nature, His will, and His coming kingdom, when we don't choose that way, we lose the reward. And all the other uses of this word in verses 2 and 5 and 16, they also speak of reward, but they're rewards that humans give. And so here's what Jesus wants His audience to do, and you and me to do, to, to stop and think, to ponder. Do I want a God reward or do I want a human reward? Which one's better? Which one's richer and more satisfying? See, God is not embarrassed to reveal himself as one who rewards us. And you and I should not be embarrassed or ashamed to receive what he seeks to give. You and I should not be ashamed to be motivated by a reward from God. Jesus was not ashamed. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, Jesus knew that he would be rewarded for the sacrifice he was making. And so for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In order to stay on that cross hour after painful hour in order not to call the angels of heaven to come and get him off that cross Jesus kept his reward before him I wonder if Jesus said over and over to himself I'm returning to my father I'm returning to my father I'm returning to joy that's my reward the joy set before him His reward kept Jesus on the cross. So God tells us about our reward so that we'll keep thinking about our reward. And thinking about our reward, keeping it ever before our eyes is what enables you and me to endure, to live very difficult lives that result from living a life of true righteousness. Hebrews 10 speaks about the difficulty of that life. The author writes, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, after you came to faith in Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God has rewards, and he delights to give them to his people. It's the promise of God's reward that enables God's people, that enables you and me to endure in this life. It isn't false humility to think that we do not need or want God's reward. It's also unbiblical. And it denies a vital aspect of who the Lord is, and it prevents us from living in this world as we ought. If God thinks we need a promise of reward to motivate us, then who are we to say, well, Lord, thank you, but I don't need that. I'll just plow on with steely determination. That's not what God wants for you and me. He wants us to be motivated by a reward, a reward of righteous living. Seeing God as a rewarder makes us love him more. We all need to love the Lord more. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is, this is incredible. God requires righteousness of us. He gives us that righteousness, and then he rewards us for the righteousness he gives us. Is that crazy? Does it make you love the Lord more? Rewarding us for what he gave us in the first place. What a God we have as our Father. Jesus isn't ashamed, not embarrassed to talk to his disciples and you and me about reward. It's beyond question that we have one. The question is, what will our reward be? And that brings us to verse 19. And in verse 19, Jesus transitions from the word reward to the related word treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is a given. It is a given that in this life, you and I, all of us, are amassing some sort of treasure. The question is, are we amassing a, a heavenly treasure or an earthly one. And so what Jesus is putting before us here is a way to look at the world. Do you look to the things of the world to bring you satisfaction? Or do you look to the things of God, His nature, His will, and His coming kingdom to bring you satisfaction? So you can be incredibly rich and find your satisfaction in your money and what it can buy for you. And that's a worldly treasure. You can be incredibly rich and use the money that God allowed you to amass to bless others. To help the poor, the needy, to help advance 
the kingdom of Christ and the, the spread of the gospel. And you can find great pleasure and satisfaction in giving your money away. And that's laying up a heavenly treasure. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, If you have money, so use it while you are here in this world that when you arrive in glory, the people who benefited by it will be there to receive you. That'd be a beautiful reward, wouldn't it? But Jesus isn't talking only about money here. He's talking about all that we have, however much or however little. Will we find satisfaction in having those things, even something silly like this, for ourselves or instead putting them in the hands of Jesus to see what he will do with it? What will satisfy you most? For me, one of the most thought-provoking questions in all of Scripture is the one that Jesus asks the blind man. He says, what do you want me to do for you? See, Jesus didn't assume the answer to the question. Instead, Jesus puts it on the man to answer that question, to think about what do you want the most? To think about what will bring you the greatest satisfaction in life. How would you answer that question? If Jesus came and, and sat beside you on the pew and whispered in your ear because he didn't want to interrupt my sermon and said, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer Jesus? How would you answer that question? Your, quest, your answer to that question will be a good reflection of what you value most, of what you treasure the most. That's what you're going to ask for. That's what Jesus says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then Jesus puts two options before us in verse 22, the healthy eye and the bad eye. Look there, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And the word translated healthy there actually means single. That's literally what the word means. If your eye is single. It refers to being motivated by singleness of purpose. And so having a healthy eye, having a single eye, means that you and I look out at the world with a singleness of purpose. Now let's put this into the context. This teaching. The Sermon on the Mount and all that Jesus preaches on this day follows right on the heels of Jesus' temptation. Matthew chapter 4 records those 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus spent in the desert where the enemy, where Satan, tempted him. And then chapter 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. And so when Jesus talks to those gathered to listen to this sermon about earthly treasures, Jesus knows what he has just very recently turned down. He knows about the temptation to which he did not succumb. Satan took Jesus up, you remember the story, up on a, a high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And Satan said to him, all of this, all of it, I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. The kingdoms of the world. How had Satan presented them? What glimmer? What shine? Had he put on them to make them very appealing. You know, if he can masquerade 
as an angel of light, even though he's the demon of death and darkness, how must he have presented these kingdoms to Jesus? It must have been a beautiful, alluring, tempting sight. But Jesus had a healthy eye. He had a singleness of purpose, and that was the cross. Dying there for you and for me to pay the price of our sins so that you and I might have a reward in heaven someday. That was a righteous purpose. It was in accord with the nature of God. It was in accord with the, the, the plan of God. The price for sin must be paid. It cannot be ignored or winked at. And so it is His human nature. It is His godly nature to be loving and merciful and compassionate. And so He paid the price that He knew that none of us could ever pay. The cross was in accord with the will of God to pay that price for us. The cross was in accord with the coming kingdom of God because of Christ's victory on the cross. His kingdom will be established forever and ever. And that healthy eye, that singleness of purpose, is what kept Jesus from giving into the temptation of the world's treasures. If we discount that temptation, if we say, well, it was Jesus and he was divine, then we discount it as a real temptation and we find ourselves in conflict with Scripture. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in Jesus we have one who understands. We have one to whom we can relate because he too was tempted. Because of that, you and I can be honest before the Lord. We can. And we must acknowledge that there are treasures in this world. There are. We all see them. We can acknowledge to the Lord that we very often have double vision. We try to look at Christ with one eye, but we also look at the world and its treasures with the other. There's no use in denying that there are things in this world that delight us. There's no use denying that we see things that we value, that we see things that we want. The question is, how will we keep them from luring us? We are wrong to do it in our own strength. We can't do it alone. Remember the story of Odysseus? In Greek mythology, he was a pagan. But even Odysseus knew that he needed to prepare himself. He needed to prepare himself before he faced temptation. You know the story. Odysseus knew that he had to sail by the island of the Sirens. And he knew that the Sirens had the sweetest songs and the most beautiful, alluring voices that any person could ever hear. And Odysseus knew that they would call to him when he passed by. He knew that many sailors before him had given in to the temptation. They had followed the song of the sirens and they had ended up shipwrecked 
and dead, or they found themselves consigned to the island of the sirens for the rest of their lives, never to return home again. So, knowing the temptation, before sailing with an earshot of the siren songs, Odysseus required that all the sailors on board plug their ears with beeswax so that they could not hear the songs, and then he required them to bind him, Odysseus, to the mast of the ship. And he told them, no matter how much I beg, no matter how much I plead, do not release me. Well, when they sailed past, and when Odysseus heard their beautiful song, he did beg, and he did plead, release me, release me, but the sailors just bound him tighter and tighter to the mast until he was safely out of earshot. Odysseus was well prepared to face the temptation. What preparations do you make to face the everyday temptations of earthly treasures and not give in? What does it communicate about what we believe about ourselves and our own strength when you and I trot off into the world day by day unprepared? We must prepare ourselves when we starve ourselves of Jesus, we starve ourselves with time with Him, we will give in. You and I must bind ourselves to Christ and to His Word every day just as tightly as Odysseus was bound to the mast of that ship. For our own sake, for the sake of our souls, we must make preparation. And so we need the Word of God every day. No excuses. You might say to me, well, Craig, that's easy for you to say because your nest is now empty. No late night homework. No early, early rising for breakfast to catch an early, early bus for school. That's true. You might say, well, easy for you, Craig. You have no idea how busy my life is. That's true. I don't. You might say, easy for you, Craig. We pay you to stay close to Jesus. And that's fair enough. But I never said that having this time with Jesus, binding ourselves to him through his word every day, will come at no cost. Guess what? It will cost you something. It will cost me something. There's a great cost to being a disciple of Christ. And that's precisely why Jesus speaks here of reward. It's why he tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that we will treasure what and who is really worth treasuring. So at the end of all of this, and everything that's been said about reward and treasure, know this one thing. Christ is our greatest treasure. Christ is our greatest treasure, both now and forevermore. And when you realize that, that Christ is your greatest treasure, you'll make different choices. 
And you'll make choices that allow you to spend more and more time with Him. Eternity will just be understanding and experiencing more and more of Christ. So we must treasure Him right now, every day, above all else. Seeing Jesus and all the facets of His beauty and His glory, when we see that day by day, that will prepare us in the light of His glory and grace. All the other treasures of this world will seem shabby, and they will not allure us and lure us because we've seen Christ. Because we've seen Christ. And we will live our lives according to God's nature, His will, and His coming kingdom. Because we've seen Christ, we will serve the one and only true and living God. And our reward, your reward, my reward, will be great. Jesus promises. Let's pray. Lord, this is such a beautiful teaching from your word. About your rewards, about treasures in heaven. Lord, we need not be ashamed, but certainly we feel unworthy that you would give us anything. We know our hearts, Lord. We know how often we live a life of double vision. And yet, Lord, in your grace and your mercy, you draw us back. So I pray, Lord, now that you would give every one of us in this room a healthy eye. Pray that you would give us an eye with single vision. Lord, that we would be devoted to you and your kingdom, to your will, to your purpose, to building your kingdom here on earth. Lord, we need you. We need to see you. We need your spirit to reveal your beauty and your truth to us so that we are not lured away from you by the treasures of the world, so that we don't waste the time that you have given us. Lord, it's so short in comparison to eternity. We don't want to waste the time. We don't want to waste the talents. We don't want to waste the resources you've given to us, building our own kingdoms and seeking our own glory and satisfaction here on earth. Lord, through a mighty work of your Spirit, we pray that we would reject that, and that we would embrace you and your call and your kingdom we would be faithful and righteous disciples of yours. We need you to do that in us. We need you to convince us by the drawing of your spirit to come into your presence every day. So we pray that you would do us, do that in us and through us and for us. We thank you for your reward that we'll receive in Jesus' name. Amen.